Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Dr. Emily Austin, our toxicology guru, and she's going to tell you that physostigmine is back. We used to avoid it like the plague back in the day, but as Dr. Austin will explain, it's actually pretty safe and effective for those patients who come in blind as a bat, dry as a bone, full as a flask, hot as a hair, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter who have normal intervals on their ECG. Consider this recent case. A 17-year-old male is brought into the emergency department with what very much sounds like an anticholinergic toxidrome. He's tachycardic at 140, hyperthermic at 38.2, his blood pressure is 160 on 85. He's clearly having visual hallucinations, occasionally addressing the wall and picking at the air. He's slightly startled and agitated. There's essentially no history available. His mother says that she last saw him well at home about four hours before, but then heard some loud noises in his room. An ECG shows sinus tachycardia with a normal QRS and QTC. All blood work done is normal. Progressively, he gets more altered. He keeps trying to climb out of his stretcher, and for his safety, the ED team has placed him in soft restraints. Despite this, he's fighting and much more agitated. It's clear that you need to give him sedation, but ideally, you'd rather not sedate him so much that he requires either excessive monitoring or even intubation and then transfer to a PICU. You're asking yourself, isn't there an antidote for the anticholinergic toxidrome? Can't I give this patient physostigmine? The anticholinergic toxidrome is really best called the anti-muscarinic toxidrome. There's antagonism of the muscarinic acetylcholine receptors in the parasympathetic and central nervous systems. And the clinical picture is just like that of our patient. A patient's going to be tachycardic, they'll maybe have mild hyperthermia, and they'll be hypertensive. Pupils will be dilated and non-reactive. And the patient's skin will appear flushed, but they're dry. I find that a really useful test at the bedside is to check if there's sweat in the axilla. An anti-muscarinic poison patient will have dry axilla. And the differential here includes sympathomimetic toxidromes, where patients will be diaphoretic and have wet skin. Now, lots of different medications have antimuscarinic effects amongst their other actions. This includes antipsychotics, antihistamines, antiepileptics, tricyclic antidepressants, the list goes on. For this reason, the clinical picture of antimuscarinic poisoning is seen fairly often in one degree or another. Treating these patients is all about managing the delirium that can cause them to injure themselves and can require lots of human power from your ED team. The two most common medications that are used in an anti-muscarinic delirium are benzodiazepines and the antidote physostigmine. Benzodiazepines are an easy choice, and they're always available. However, benzodiazepines will sedate a patient, allowing for resolution of the agitation, but not really so much resolution of the delirium itself. Physostigmine, however, is another option. Physostigmine is a relative of the medication neostigmine. It blocks the breakdown of acetylcholine by inhibiting the enzyme acetylcholinesterase, thus making more acetylcholine available to reach receptors. If you're thinking that this sounds familiar, you'd be right. Physostigmine is actually a carbamate by definition. Several studies have shown the efficacy of using physostigmine in the anti-muscarinic poison patient. 
In fact, an older paper from 1999 suggested that physostigmine decreased the agitation and reversed the delirium at a much more significant rate than benzodiazepines, which led to more sedated but confused patients. Physostigmine for a while had a really, really bad rap. In 1980, a paper was published where two tricyclic antidepressant poison patients developed an asystolic cardiac arrest within five minutes of being administered physostigmine. One of them actually died. Both of these patients had an ECG with significantly prolonged QRS prior to the administration of physostigmine. And the etiology of their arrests is now thought to be most likely from the TCA poisoning. However, for a long time, physostigmine was avoided for this reason. Today, many toxicologists and eMERGE physicians recognize that physostigmine is really quite safe in the patients with antimuscarinic delirium and a normal QRS and QTC on the ECG. As well, physostigmine can have useful therapeutic and diagnostic uses. Oftentimes, after giving physostigmine, a patient's delirium will clear and you can have a frank conversation with them about what the exposure was. Before giving physostigmine, you should get an ECG to confirm that you have normal intervals. If the QRS and QTC are normal, give 1 to 2 milligrams IV over 10 minutes in adults. The dose in kids is 0.02 mg per kg. A patient's mentation usually will clear within about 5 to 10 minutes of administration. Sometimes the physostigmine needs to be redosed if antimuscarinic symptoms return. The most common adverse effects include drooling and nausea or vomiting. Seizures have been reported to occur in under 1% of cases where physostigmine is used. In the case of our patient, 1 mg IV physostigmine was given over 2 minutes. After a few minutes, he began to interact appropriately and endorsed taking an overdose of diphenhydramine earlier that evening. He was subsequently cleared to psychiatry after about 18 hours when his vital signs had normalized. If you haven't used physostigmine before, it's worth chatting with your pharmacist about its availability in your hospital. It can be really useful in the patients with an antimuscarinic poisoning and delirium. All right, so consider physostegmine for the delirious antimuscarinic patient, but make sure they do not have a prolonged QRS or QT before giving it. It's probably best to consult your local poison control center to be sure that your patient is a candidate. And don't forget that lipid emulsion therapy is also an option in the crashing antimuscarinic patient. Next up, we've got my friend, my mentor, my colleague, Walter Himmel, clearing up any confusion you might have when it comes to nystagmus. Now, here's the most important question that's going to plague you the rest of your career. And if you can figure this out, life will be beautiful. Is the person having a stroke or do they have vestibular neuronitis? Is that dizzy patient? Is that vertiginous patient? Is it central or is it peripheral? Which one is it? If you know nystagmus, then you can get a pretty good idea the patient's having a central problem or a peripheral. Central means stroke. Central means thalantin toxicity. Central means multiple sclerosis. Central means tumor. What does peripheral mean? Peripheral means vestibular neuronitis or BPPV. Basically, nystagmus is absolutely fundamentally crucial, and totally misunderstood. First of all, what is nystagmus? Nystagmus is involuntary movement of the eyes, which continues. Now, there are two kinds of nystagmus, basically jerk nystagmus and pendular nystagmus. 
jerk nystagmus, and pendular. Well, let's get pendular out of the way. Pendular nystagmus means vaginas are moving back and forth and back and forth in a sinusoidal manner. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about jerk nystagmus. Now, why is it called jerk nystagmus? Well, I'll tell you why. It's pretty obvious. Your eyes move slowly in one direction and whoop, quickly in the other direction. Your eyes move slowly to the right and then rapidly to the left. Slowly to the right and jerk to the left. Or your eyes move slowly to the left and jerk to the right. Jerk nystagmus means there's two components, a slow movement in one direction and then a fast movement to correct it. I'm talking about jerk nystagmus. Now, some jerk nystagmuses are typical of central and some jerk nystagmuses are typical for peripheral. So let's go through this and I'll try to be very clear. I will tell you what's always peripheral, almost always. I'll tell you what's always central and I mean always central and I'll tell you where you can't be sure. So let's get the easy one out of the way. What kind of nystagmus is always central? If you have pure vertical nystagmus, that's always central. Now don't be fooled. If you've got benign paroxysmal position of vertigo, you will have inducible nystagmus. And to the unexperienced person, you will think it's central. And I'll tell you why. The nystagmus of benign paroxysmal positional vertigo is vertical rotatory. Vertical rotatory. With BPPV, the nystagmus is the following. The eyes move up and they rotate to the right. Now, if you've never seen it, it's hard to believe. Google it and you'll see some videos. Back to central. If it's purely vertical, if it's beating purely up or purely down with no rotational element, that is always central. No questions asked. So if the person looks up, the eyes beat up quickly and down slowly. Look up quickly and down slowly. That's jerk nystagmus. It's purely vertical. It's always central. Now, what else is always central? If it's purely rotational dystagmus. The eyes actually move in a circular manner. Yes, it actually exists. So you've got somebody, upon examination of their eyes, you notice their eyes are moving clockwise. You know, they move from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock, back to 12 to 2 o'clock, back to 12, and it's purely rotatory. That's always central. So now we know what's always central. Purely vertical or purely rotatory is always central. So point one out of the way. Now, let's move on. When you've got nystagmus, it's slowly in one direction and quickly in the other. That's called jerk nystagmus. The nystagmus is named by the direction of the quick component. If your eyes slowly move to the right and quickly to the left, it's called jerk nystagmus to the left. So let's talk about peripheral nystagmus. In plain words, the nystagmus of BPPV or the nystagmus of acute vestibular neuronitis. And here's exactly what it's like. With vestibular neuronitis, you've got continuous nystagmus. And with vestibular neuronitis, nystagmus is always, always unidirectional. For example, 
If you've got vestibular neuritis involving the right ear, you will have a nystagmus. And nystagmus is the following. It will move slowly to the right ear and quickly to the left. Now, if you look to the right, it'll move slowly to the right and quickly to the left. If you look to the left, it'll move slowly to the right and quickly to the left. So with peripheral nystagmus, such as in labyrinthitis or such as in vestibular unitis, it doesn't matter where you look, the fast component will always be in the same direction. Now, there's something called Alexander's Law, which means the following. And you will see this time and time again. When you look in the direction of the fast component, it's always more obvious. When you look in the direction of the slow component, nystagmus is always less obvious, but it always beats in the same direction. So if nystagmus is jerk nystagmus and unidirectional, which is named from the fast component, it's almost always peripheral. Now, I didn't say always. I said almost always. Next patient. Let's say you've got a patient, and if you look to the right, the fast component is to the right. And if you look to the left, the fast component is to the left. Is that unidirectional? No, it's bidirectional. Their fast component is always in the direction you're looking at. This is never peripheral. If they have bidirectional nystagmus, it's virtually always central. So who has bidirectional nystagmus? Well, people who are very drunk have bidirectional nystagmus because the alcohol has poisoned their brain. People with dilatant toxicity have bidirectional nystagmus. Why is that? Because the dilatant has poisoned their brain. And this is quite funny. Next time you've got a patient with dilatant toxicity or who's really drunk, look at their eyes. And you'll notice this. The more you look, the more you'll see. When you look up, their eyes beat up. When you look down, their eyes beat down. When you look to the right, their eyes beat to the right. When you look to the left, their eyes beat to the left. Or if you're having a stroke, the same will virtually always happen. So now we know the following. Unidirectional nystagmus is almost always peripheral. Multidirectional nystagmus is virtually always central. So now, what have we learned so far? Purely vertical is always central. Purely rotational is always central. Unidirectional, the fast component is always in the same direction, is virtually always peripheral. And multidirectional is virtually always central. So what else do you have to know? Well, there's only one other question. Is the nystagmus spontaneous or is it evoked. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's very simple. The patient's sitting up and looking at you. You have not done the Hintz test. You have not done a head impulse test. You have not done a Dix-Halpike test. You've done nothing. And their eyes are demonstrating nystagmus. Second after second, minute after minute after minute after minute. This is called continuous nystagmus. That could be central or could be peripheral. Now, I'll tell you why it's important to know. Continuous nystagmus is never benign, paroxysmal, positional, vertical. Continuous nystagmus, minute after minute, hour after hour, 
is either central or peripheral. And if the continuous nystagmus is unidirectional, it's peripheral labyrinthitis. Now, how about triggered nystagmus? What does that mean? Well, the patient's sitting quietly, and you look at their eyes, there's no nystagmus. But if you turn their head, or they sit up, you see nystagmus. But it ends after 30 seconds, or a minute, or a minute and a half. That's called evoked nystagmus, also known as transient nystagmus, also known as temporary nystagmus. If your nystagmus is evoked, and if it lasts less than a minute or two, you are not dealing with vestibular neuronitis, you are not dealing with a stroke, you're dealing with benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, and sometimes a very rare thing called central positional vertigo. And that's it. So we, now we know what nystagmus is. It's movement slowly in one direction, quick in the other. That's called jerk nystagmus. Now we know if it's purely vertical, it's always central. If it's purely rotational, it's always central. If it's multi-directional, it's central. And if it's unidirectional, it's almost always peripheral. And now we also know that if it's inducible and lasting less than a minute, a minute and a half, it's either central positional vertigo, almost unheard of, or BPPV. And remember, BPPV is not rotational. It's not vertical. It's vertical rotatory. And it's almost always unidirectional. And that's all you have to know. And that's it, folks. Now you're experts. Ah, nystagmus finally cleared up. Next, we have a special guest on EM Cases, EM doc Rob Devlin. He's been practicing in Ontario for about 28 years now. And in the last few years, he's discovered the wonders of TEE in cardiac arrest. Okay, I'm going to talk to you today about transesophageal echo in the emergency department, something that you probably have heard of. So recently, we received a 49-year-old in VSA from EMS. Although the rest was witnessed, there was no CPR for about three to five minutes. When the paramedics got to the scene, they found the patient in V-fib. They shocked him. Unfortunately, he went into PA. Upon arrival in RED, he'd had three courses or three rounds of epi. We had two docs on. The other doc ran the code, allowing me to focus on the transesophageal echo. With CPR ongoing, we intubated the patient and then inserted the probe. This took about three minutes. After probe insertion, we performed the first POCUS pulse check. With TEE, took us about six to seven seconds. The patient was still in PEA with a narrow complex rhythm at 60 to 80 beats per minute. There was very slight echocardiographic motion with this, so-called PREM, pulseless rhythm echocardiographic motion, but not enough to generate a palpable pulse. So we resumed CPR. Compressions were adequate with respect to depth, but they seemed to be centered near the LVOT, and the aortic valve leaflets displayed minimal opening. The entitled CO2 was only reading about 10. So, compressions were moved down the sternum about 2 centimeters and 1 centimeter over to the left. This resulted in much better compression of the LV itself, and it improved the opening of the aortic valve leaflets, something we saw immediately when we, when we were looking on the screen. 
A minute later, the patient's end tidal CO2 came up to about 20. At the next pulse check, the patient was in V-fib. He was defibrillated and CPR was resumed. Not too long after that, we got what we're always aiming for. We got ROSC. Post-ROSC, we had an expanded look with TE. This revealed global LB dysfunction with an EF in the neighborhood of 25%. There were no signs of RV strain. We moved to a transgastric short-axis view, the equivalent of the parasternal short-axis view in the transthoracic views. There were no obvious wall motion abnormalities. We then examined the descending aorta back up to the arch, no evidence of dissection. Returning to the mid-esophageal views, we looked at the ascending aorta. Again, no dissection. A little tweak, and we looked at the pulmonary trunk and the right pulmonary artery. No saddle embolus. Then we rotated to the SVC to assess its volume status. It showed minimal collapse with positive pressure inspiration. That told us that the patient was likely euvolemic. All of this expanded view took us two to three minutes. While I was carrying this out, the rest of the team provided the usual great post-ROS care they do. Of course, this included a 12-lead ECG, easily performed since the all-important real estate on the anterior chest was vacant, something that would not have been the case had we been doing transthoracic focus. The ECG showed an anterior stemming. So, the patient was transferred down to our regional PCI center directly to the cath lab. They identified the culprit lesion being a complete occlusion of his mid-LED. Post-stent, there was normal flow, but he only had a grade 3 ventricle. By the next day, his EF was up to 45%. Two questions in discussion. First, should you do TE? Not surprisingly, we think the answer is a clear yes. As illustrated in the case, it's going to help you guide and improve compressions. It will also shorten your pulse checks. Additionally, it's going to let you look for other causes of arrest. Beyond that, it's going to allow you to guide pre-arrest care in your patients who are peri-arrest before they've arrested and help you with their post-ROS care as we demonstrated. On top of all of that, it's going to allow you to acquire cardiac views in that small subset of patients where no subxiphoid or transthoracic window exists. And finally, one last benefit, it frees up the all-important real estate on the patient's interior chest, both intra, pre, and post-arrest. Second question, can you DTE? Again, an emphatic yes. At present, there are four community and two academic center emergency departments in Canada performing intra and peri-arrest transesophageal echo. You can do it too. There are some out there, including maybe you, some of the listeners, thinking, man, that seems like a lot to undertake just to be able to do this stuff. Well, in response, I'd say this. How many of you have spent very significant amounts of time, money, and effort getting a POCUS machine for your department and then learning how to look for such things as a AAA or an IUP to rule out an ectopic? Really valuable things to look for. But I challenge you, haven't you treated at least as many patients in cardiac arrest as you have who've had a AAA or actually had an ectopic? The incremental cost of performing TEE on top of the POCUS you've already got are less daunting than they were for performing POCUS in the first place. The second point of opposition we hear is the lack of evidence of benefit, as always happens with new stuff, right? While definitive studies are still ongoing, we think there's little doubt that the research will demonstrate this modality is extremely beneficial. After all, think about it. You're going to be guiding compressions in real time, detecting cardiac activity in a pulseless patient, evaluating LV function, 
examining the aorta and the pericardium, and assessing volume status, all within minutes of the patient's arrival in the ED. We think this will certainly prove to be highly useful. So, what's the bottom line? Well, this is coming. If you don't stay current, you risk being left behind. More importantly, what we're talking about here is improving the way we do resuscitation for those who are most dire need of it. Why not do it as well as possible? Sounds very cool. I'm going to start asking around about getting some training for TEE. I mean, it totally makes sense to me. Let us know what you guys think. Next, as a follow-up to our most recent ECG cases blog release on detecting subtle inferior MIs, we've got Jesse McLaren. You're looking at an ECG on a patient with acute chest pain and notice there's ST elevation in the inferior leads but it's less than one millimeter in two leads, so it doesn't meet STEMI criteria. What do you do? Do you wait for a troponin to see if it's an N-STEMI, or could it be peritarditis? It turns out that whether or not the ST elevation is greater or less than one millimeter is not the main question, and this was recognized more than 25 years ago. In 1993, a study in the European Heart Journal of more than 100 patients with acute inferior MI found that only 87% had one millimeter of ST elevation in any one inferior lead, let alone two leads. But 97% had ST depression in AVL of at least half a millimeter. This included 7.5% of ECGs in which this was the only sign of an early inferior MI. AVL is the only lead reciprocal to the inferior wall, so ST depression in this lead is highly sensitive for inferior MI, and like other reciprocal changes, it can precede ST elevation. Three years ago, a study in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine added more insights. Among more than 400 patients with inferior MI, only 87% actually met STEMI criteria, but 99% had ST depression in AVL of at least a quarter of a millimeter. The same study included 49 cases of pericarditis and found that none had any ST depression in AVL. So not only is ST depression in AVL sensitive for inferior MI, but it's also specific in differentiating pericarditis. One important caveat. ST depression can be secondary to an abnormal QRS complex including LVH, left bundle branch block, paste rhythm, or WPW, or it can be from an old MI. As with all ECGs, we need to consider patient history or previous ECGs, and we need to interpret ST and T-wave changes in the context of the QRS, differentiating between secondary repolarization abnormalities and primary ischemic changes. In summary, STEMI criteria have limited sensitivity for identifying acute coronary occlusion, especially inferior MI, and waiting for borderline ST elevation to exceed the one millimeter threshold will lead to delayed reperfusion. Instead of taking out a magnifying glass to see whether the ST elevation is 0.9 or one millimeter, simply look at AVL. In patients with a normal QRS, 
and no previous inferior MI, ST depression in AVL is very sensitive for inferior MI, differentiates it from pericarditis, and can be the first sign of occlusion. It can also be a clue to look for other signs of inferior MI, like hyperacute T waves, convex ST segments, anterior ST depression and tall R waves from infraposterior MI, or ST elevation on posterior leads. So the next time that you're looking at an ECG on a patient with ischemic symptoms, consider the conclusions of the recent study on AVL, which I'll end on. We recommend scrutiny of lead AVL in patients with suspicion of acute inferior MI. Those with any depression in AVL may have subtle coronary occlusion and should be intensively evaluated with serial ECGs, immediate formal echocardiography or angiography, instead of a more relaxed approach in which MI is only ruled out by biomarkers. So don't ignore AVL. ST depression in AVL can help differentiate MI from pericarditis and can diagnose inferior MI before the classic criteria are met. To get some great visuals of what Dr. McLaren's talking about, run through the eight cases that are beautifully laid out on ECG cases number three on the EMCases website. Next up, we've got Petro giving you some pearls and pitfalls when it comes to blunt cerebrovascular injury. Okay, let's talk about blunt cerebrovascular injuries, or BCVI for short. These aren't injuries that are commonly discussed, so this might be less familiar for some of you. Perfect. Let's get you caught up. Instead of starting with a case, we're going to go over what this is all about and really how we're going to diagnose it. At the end, we'll go through three cases and the decision-making with each. So what is this BCVI you speak of? Well, it's basically non-penetrating injury to either the carotid or vertebral arteries usually resulting in some type of vessel injury like dissection, pseudoaneurysm, or rarely transection. During the trauma, the intima can tear and result in sequelae like arterial stenosis, occlusion, or thromboembolism. Usually, the mechanism is an acceleration-deceleration injury or anything that causes significant hyperextension, hyperflexion, or rotational neck trauma. I'm sure many of you are asking, do you even care about this? Well, you should. The problem here is that there's a risk of ischemic stroke, which increases when this type of injury isn't recognized. And it remains quite an underrecognized condition. I get it, it's not that common, but it's probably still 1-2% to of the trauma patients who get admitted, so it's common enough that you should care. A bigger problem, we forget about this type of injury because most people don't present with neurologic symptoms. About 25% will develop stroke symptoms within 24 hours, but almost 10% won't manifest a stroke for at least a week so screening is critical. But there's good news. Treatment after screening significantly reduces incident of stroke for those presenting without neurologic symptoms. The biggest issue is identifying those who are at risk. So what can we do? Well, maybe include a heuristic to help. Just like one should get an ECG in a patient with chest pain, how about for any patient with head injury or neck injury that you're thinking about a CT scan, Ask yourself, does this patient also have a risk for blunt cerebrovascular injury? Otherwise, it's just simply too hard to trigger investigating for BCVI if you just try to remember it. Now, it doesn't mean that you investigate every patient with head or neck injuries, but it's something to think about. Unfortunately, the good people in Denver 
have established quite sensitive screening criteria to help guide your decision-making. These criteria, initially proposed in 1999, have been modified and expanded in 2011, and have gone under further modifications since. And they've been shown to have an impressive 97% sensitivity with a 42% specificity. I'm going to walk you through the Denver criteria. My first piece of advice, don't bother memorizing them. Rather, like I said, if you have a patient with a head or neck injury, particularly if you're considering a CT scan, then ask, is this patient also at risk for BCVI? The criteria are a bit lengthy, but nothing that MD-Calc can't solve for you. They're divided up into risk factors and clinical findings, but it's not really that well organized, so I'll walk you through a more practical approach to the criteria. You're going to ask yourself three questions in the context of the patient. Number one, is there anything on the history or mechanism of injury that puts this patient at risk for BCVI? Number two, are there any physical exam findings that could indicate risk for BCVI? And number three, you've done a CT head and, and or C-spine, and is there any CT finding that puts this patient at risk for BCVI? Now, let's look at each one of these three questions and the individual items in the Denver criteria. Okay, number one, the mechanism. Well, there's only one criteria, but did the patient suffer a hanging or strangulation injury? Next up is the physical exam. There's nine criteria, so bear with me. There's arterial hemorrhage above the clavicles, carotid brewery or neck hematoma, focal neurologic deficits, GCS less than six, neck seatbelt sign with swelling or altered mental status, scalp degloving, thoracic vascular injury, first or second rib fractures, complex facial fractures, or blunt cardiac rupture. I know that's a bit ridiculous, but it's in the criteria. And then finally, there are the imaging findings that should prompt us to go back and order a CTA. Number one, CT head and the clinical exam don't match up. For instance, the patient is quite obtunded, but the CT head is normal and there's no substances involved. Two, facial bone fractures like mandible or Lafort two or three basal skull fractures and occipital condyle fractures, and finally, C-spine fractures or subluxation. A few comments about this. I don't do a CTA on every C-spine fracture or mandible fracture, but I certainly have a low threshold, and this is one that I've adopted in the past few years. The criteria are designed to be as sensitive as possible, so they'd say even a small spinous process fracture should get a CTA, because it's not whether the fracture passes close to or through the vessel, but rather, was the mechanism sufficient to also cause vascular injury? But you'll have to decide how closely you'll want to follow these criteria. Next, now that we've suspected BCVI, how are we going to diagnose it? The answer is CTA. It's a good contrast study that includes both the head and carotids. And, great news, CTA is nearly as good as digital subtraction angiography, with sensitivity of 98% and specificity of 100%. So no need for an MRA or Doppler, just stick with a CTA. What might we find if there is an injury? Typically, these include things like vague descriptions, such as vessel irregularities or slight narrowing. But more commonly, we see things like thrombus, dissection, significant narrowing, arterial occlusion, or even transection. Now that we've found one of these injuries, what are we going to do about it? Well, the mainstay of treatment is antithrombotic therapy either antiplatelets or anticoagulants. But before you start handing out heparin or even aspirin to all these folks, this should prompt a consult to a neurologist, a neurosurgeon, or a neurointerventionalist. 
The main caveat here is that the patient may also have bleeding from another injury, and antithrombotic therapy sometimes needs to be delayed until the patient is stabilized and the bleeding is controlled. Involve your consultants. It's really often not that straightforward. Okay, we're almost done. Let's talk about three cases. Case number one. 45-year-old male assaulted with isolated head trauma. He has left hemotympanum, his GCS is 15, without focal deficits. If we apply our heuristic, this patient has head trauma and will require a CT. I'm going to ask myself, is there a possibility of BCVI? The answer is yes, with those signs of basal skull fracture. Now, it's still reasonable to do a plain head, weight radiographic confirmation of basal skull fracture. But if it's present on scan, then this patient requires a CTA, given the risk of injury to the internal carotid artery and the subsequent risk for infarction. Case 2. 75-year-old female, GCS4, unwitnessed fall from 3 feet. Appropriately, you decide to intubate her. She's in C-spine precautions. She needs an emergent CT head and C-spine. Is this patient at risk for BCVI? Definitely. She's got a suspected TBI, and her GCS is less than 6, so she meets the Denver criteria. If you can't get the CTA immediately, it can always wait, as the priority here is to ensure there's not a bleed requiring decompression. But 9 times out of 10, I'll be adding on a CTA for this patient up front. And finally, case three, a 30-year-old male who attempted suicide by hanging. He briefly lost consciousness. He has no focal deficits. He has obvious neck abrasions, but no evidence of vascular injury. If we apply the Denver criteria, this patient should also get a CTA based on the mechanism of injury. So that's it. Blunt cerebrovascular injuries. Let's recap. Number one, BCVI can result in stroke, and yet patients are often initially asymptomatic. Two, for any patient with head or neck trauma, typically those that you think require imaging, consider the possibility of BCVI. And three, use the Denver criteria to guide your decision-making. They're too long to memorize, but they can be categorized based on risks related to one, mechanism of injury, two, physical exam findings, and three, CT findings. And that's it. Love that heuristic. So for any patient getting a CT after head plus minus neck injury, Ask yourself if they're at risk for blunt cerebrovascular injury and simply look up the Denver criteria on MD-Calc. All right, last but not least, I was fortunate enough to bump into my buddy, Ruben Strayer, at the latest ASEP conference, and he was kind enough to record a couple of quick hits, and here's the first one. We're in Denver at ASEP 2019 with my friend, lateral thinker extraordinaire, Ruben Strayer. He's going to introduce us to a concept that I've never heard before, and I suspect that many of you haven't either. Thanks, Anton. Let's talk about choiceibo. We're all familiar with the placebo effect, though we often underestimate its importance. The placebo effect is when positive expectations improve outcome, or more colloquially, if you think something is going to work, it's more likely to work. The placebo effect is powerful, and we don't use it as much as we could. In some departments, you used to be able to order Obacalp, which is placebo spelled backward, and the nurse would bring some sort of inert substance to cure whatever was ailing the patient, and of course, this often worked. Obacalp pills seem to have disappeared, but you can still order a multivitamin, and how effective it is depends on how you frame it to your patient. I find this particularly effective in older patients with mild cognitive deficit who frequently present with nonspecific complaints, often the same complaint over and over, negative workups over and over, these symptoms are often responsive to a generous dose of riboflavin or thiamine. 
Diphenhydramine is everyone's favorite active placebo, mildly sedating, and what emergency department patient couldn't use a mild sedative? Well, that same elderly, mildly demented patient doesn't need an anticholinergic sedative, but just about everyone else is a good candidate, unbeatable for that patient you'd like to discharge, but just needs something for his symptoms, whatever they are. If you can determine the underlying pathophysiology and offer a specific treatment, by all means, treat. But, but often we can't, so we don't know what we're treating, and a little Benadryl can go a long way. That's placebo. Nocebo is the converse of placebo, where negative expectations worsen outcome. This is not an effect we want to harness, but it's good to be aware of it. When someone says, I've tried this therapy for this problem and it hasn't worked, it is usually not worth your time or your patient's time to try it again. But let's talk about choicebo. Choicebo is the phenomenon where having the ability to choose improves outcome. So if therapy A and therapy B are effective to a certain degree, both of them will be more effective if you let the patient choose. This is a variant of shared decision-making, but we think about shared decision-making as a tool to improve patient satisfaction and reduce legal risk. It does both of those things, but when you offer a choice, your treatment is actually more effective. And in the majority of patient encounters, more than one treatment option is reasonable, so offer a choice. There are so many example scenarios. We now have evidence that 400 milligrams ibuprofen works as well as 800, but so what? Offer a choice. Ma'am, I can give you 400 milligrams or 800 milligrams. 800 milligrams might work better, but might cause a little more side effects, like upset stomach. We know from the brilliantly designed 30-year-old double placebo study by Schwartz, Academic Emergency Medicine, Volume 7, Issue 8, that the intramuscular route of delivery for Ketorolac does not improve analgesia over the oral route. In that study, all patients received a cup of orange-flavored drink that was presented as non-medicinal orange-flavored drink, but actually contained 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. And then all patients received a non-medication that they were told was medication. They were randomized to receive either an inert pill that they were told was a pain reliever, or an inert intramuscular injection that they were told was a pain reliever. These two pseudo-medications were identical in appearance to ibuprofen 800 milligrams or Ketorolac 60 milligrams because the nurses administering these false non-medications and false medications were also blinded to the methods of the study. I suspect the study would not be approved by a modern IRB, but fortunately, IRBs of that era were less rigorous. So now we know with high certainty that the IM route of delivery does not offer improved analgesia because the two arms of this double placebo study had equal outcomes. However, patients in that study were not given a choice. Ma'am, I can give you a pill for your pain or a shot. They are both very effective. The shot will work a little faster, but it hurts a little. Which one would you prefer? The point here is that by empowering the patient with a choice, you are actually making your treatment whatever it is, more effective. There are so many other examples. Since I've gotten into Choicebo, I've made it a challenge for myself to offer a treatment choice in just about every case. The answer to the normal saline versus balanced fluid debate might be here. I can't guarantee your sepsis outcomes will be improved, but why not offer your patient a choice? Everyone's already excited about treating septic shock with vitamin C. Please your patients, amaze your colleagues, make your shifts more interesting by harnessing the power of the placebo effect and the Choicebo effect. All right, here's the review. One, physostigmine is back for antimuscarinic poisoning. Just check the ECG and consult your toxicologist before going crazy with the stuff. Next, nystagmus can be very confusing, so you might want to re-listen to Dr. Himmel's segment to clear it up. It starts at minute seven, but the bottom line is 
pure vertical, pure rotatory, and pure multidirectional are central, while unidirectional jerk nystagmus is almost always peripheral, and BPPV is only inducible nystagmus that lasts a minute or two and is almost always vertical rotatory. Next, we heard from Rob Devlin giving a great example of how TEE can help in cardiac arrest. Further study is pending, but if you can get access to training for this, we recommend giving it a shot. Jesse McLaren told us about the wonders of lead AVL in distinguishing MI from pericarditis and to help us suspect inferior MI before full-blown STEMI is obvious. Petro gave us the lowdown on the Denver criteria for blunt cerebrovascular injury. Think about this potentially devastating problem in your head-injured patients. And Strayer brilliantly laid out a beautiful nuance in shared decision-making, Choicebo. Okay, the EM Cases course in February is sold out, but we have opened a couple of extra spots. Check the EM Cases site under Courses to link to the registration page. Until next time... In the words of Barbara Tatum, be kind and make waves. Mm